Hi, this is Tamsin Granger. This is Dan Abuhoff. Tamsin and Dan read the paper. It's Sunday, October 20th. Oh, man, it's getting close to Halloween. Yeah, and uh, a very festive week. Uh, happy anniversary uh, to oh, my well, sister, that's... Sarah, and her husband, Bill. Everybody had an anniversary this week. First of all, yeah, we, we had our anniversary. anniversary. And, uh, Tom and Lisa's around this time. I told you Rob Hotz at his anniversary. It, it, yeah. People get married in October, but back to Halloween, you know, Lambertville is when... Wait a minute, wait, I have other things. Oh, I'm sorry, what? Happy birthday, Noel. Oh, okay. Happy birthday, Noel. It's tomorrow. But um, Lambertville is one of those small towns uh, that's famous for people decorating out of their minds for Halloween. We haven't taken the tour yet this year. Lambertville being on the opposite side of the river from New Hope, where we are right Lambertville, now. Lambertville, New, New Jersey. Jersey. Yeah. And I'm not sure I ever quite understood that. And we did it once. It's, took the tour, and well, maybe we'll do it again. It's wildly over the top. People go insane with these decorations. and It's not kids doing it. It's not for kids, as far as I can tell. Actually, what makes it interesting yeah. is it's uh, there's some fairly sophisticated efforts. Very sophisticated. Okay, it's not just a matter of some laser lights... Hmm. and uh, some sparkly inflatable pumpkins or something. Right. There are some quite uh, original uh, ghoulish vignettes going you, it's on. It's crazy. You would think if these people apply themselves uh, in the, with the same vigor in other areas, uh, their whole lives might be better. But in any event, not making judgments, but it, it's crazy. It sounds like you're making judgments. I guess I am a little bit. But it, it's uh, <laughs> people must love Halloween. Some of these people are... do love Halloween. Yeah. Some of our very closest dearest friends love halloween oh yeah that's true yeah we're that's... talking about dixon dixon yeah dixon yes. yeah dixon yes yeah right uh well listen we could go on and on about halloween you of course being the famous winner of the uh, cranberry uh kids costume yeah we've, award. Uh, we've, we've been over that many times but I, it's worth podcast. repeating three no, years in a row <laughs> three years in a row who does that that's uh it's it's unparalleled uh, maybe this the, is a good week uh, to make my students dress up like gods and goddesses. Is that what you're doing? Possibly. Wow. Okay. Not not completely, but uh, I don't know. You could do that. These I aren't little in, kids, you know. I bring in the attributes, you know, and uh, you know, hand somebody a golden apple, hand a girl, yeah, golden apple, yeah. Who is she? Venus huh? with a golden apple, yeah. yeah. Uh, hand, uh, hand somebody some winged sandals. Yeah. I have a pair of your old sandals that I stapled some cardboard wings to mm. and uh, hand those to a guy. Yeah. Who is he? Uh, Apollo. Hermes. Hermes. Was it, what was Apollo then? Apollo's Apollo the... gets a lyre. Uh-huh. Oh, a lyre, as in a musical instrument. L-Y-R-E, yeah. yes. Uh, I thought, uh, okay. And uh, actually a little uh, laurel wreath as well. Mm. Yeah, okay. Something to look forward to. Yes. Um, so this week, as a, yesterday, we, we, we were still getting over last night. We had a late night last night. We were out for um, dinner and then jazz club. We were at, what did we decide the name of this building was? The Time the, Warner the Center. The Time Warner Center. Columbus Circle. At Columbus Circle. 59th Street in Manhattan. There's some excellent browsing at the Williams-Sonoma. That's right. And then we got together. This is a, a firm gathering. A uh, nice group of people. We had dinner at, I'm going to say it's the Bluebird London. Right. And uh, I don't know how new it is, but it hasn't been there for terribly long. 
Uh, and I thought it was very elegant. I thought it was very nice. It was fancy schmancy. Yes, fancy schmancy. That's yes. the, those are the words I was looking for. The drawback for. is uh, we had a private room. Yeah, and why? And that? it was jam packed with our group. Yeah, and it the noise level was. Oh really? I didn't notice. Tremendous. That. Oh, I, I wasn't. I wasn't suffering from that. I guess I had had a couple of, uh, you know, whatever. But uh, it was. I thought the food was very good. Uh, and you can't always count on the food, but the food was very good. Yeah. The service was very good. But it's a very nice looking place. Uh, and they we serve breakfast, lunch, dinner, and afternoon tea. Really? And we didn't have to pay for it. I, I bet it's real expensive. Daniel, you're a partner. You pay for well, it. Well, I understand. But what I'm seeing is we didn't see any prices. And I, I bet if we saw the prices, uh, they would have been impressive. But uh, neither here nor there. You know, we've gone to a couple of restaurants in the Time Warner Center before, and they kind of match up to this kind of thing. They're kind of nicely done. Uh, they're nice spaces, and the food's usually pretty good. You mean when they plan a party at your law firm, they don't send you to dumpy, frumpy places? No, they don't. They send you to nice places? Yeah. What a surprise. What a surprise. What a shock. So afterwards... So we enjoyed talking to the people. Right, we did. We heard stories from all over the world. Right, Japan. Italy, yeah. In particular. Japan partners. And, and the Upper East Side. Yeah, so it was, uh, you know, it was fun. Yeah. And then, you know, the fun came to a blinding halt. <laughs> Because we I, had to I, walk to the other side of the building. I think grinding halt. And gl- go to a jazz performance. Yeah, well, it's, uh, take it easy with this. Because we, because we went to, as was offered as part of the, the bill for some of us who opted this way, uh, we went to see a jazz performance of what I'll say was called the Apple Room, uh, which is an adjoining space. And they have some very nice performing spaces there. Um, so it's a fantastic little space. Like I think it's described as an amphitheater, isn't it? I yeah, I mean, it has you know stadium seating. Right. And uh, it just looks out to this huge window yeah. that looks over Columbus Circle. Yeah, you could, it's an it's unbelievable, a, unbelievable view. vista, even right. at night. Right. With all the glittering lights. Oh, yeah, even better at night, possibly. But the downside is it was jazz. Well, <laughs> First of all, this, the, the room's great. The room, it's, it's almost magical. Uh, and there's nothing wrong with jazz. That and this, held me for five minutes. It, but this, uh, and, and the performance was someone we were not familiar with, named uh, Joe uh, Lovano. And he apparently has evolved uh, over the years. And so it's not like he has one group or one brand. And he's now assembled something called the Universal Jazz Ensemble, which is a bunch of... Uh, independently minded musicians who are virtuosic and he's assembled them and they get together and they want to see what they come up with. And it is what I think is fairly described as esoteric jazz, which, uh, you know, there are gradations of that. And it's not as if we're completely unsophisticated listening jazz. Well, I'm pretty unsophisticated. No, you're not. We went I to, am. I, we, am. We, I can enjoy some jazz. But we've been to jazz clubs. This was clubs. tough. We, we've this been, was hard. Okay. We've been to jazz clubs in New York and elsewhere. We've seen people who I think legitimately described as jazz artists and that exist in that realm. They're not even terribly commercial. I'm not setting ourselves up as experts. Uh, but uh, that said, uh, I'm with you. Uh, I didn't get into it. Uh, it was tough. It was tough sledding. Tough sledding. And there were people walking out. Yeah. It was, uh, it was kind of in terms of the endurance factor, it was somewhere between uh, watching, you know, sort of, School play in which you don't have a child, you know, that's always rough to get through. And in the other end of the spectrum, sort of Yom Kippur when you've been fasting for about 20 hours. So those are, those are, you know, that kind of experience. This was, it was in the, in, in, on the yeah. spectrum. 
I mean, uh, I felt I was taking one for the team. Yeah. I said, Dan loves jazz. I will encourage him to go to this thing, and I will survive. Yeah, so, okay. I only barely survived. All those things were true. You did survive. No one was hurt. There was one person who left, and people did leave early. There was one person who left uh, using a cane, but I think he used the cane going in. So I, I can't blame that on anything that happened on the stage. Uh, I think you got to work on your material a little bit. <laughs> I was... Uh, Anyway, so it was a challenge, but uh, which is not to say other people didn't enjoy it. I think uh, other, I didn't take a poll. Well, but we have a, been to the time, uh, to the Lincoln Jazz. Right, we've seen some things before. that we enjoy quite a bit. And uh, one of the other venues we've been to is Dizzy's Coca Cola Club. Right, and that's like a club. And what we that saw that has tables and chairs and food and, and drinks. Drink. And what we saw was more mainstream there, but uh, and we enjoyed yeah. it. Yeah. Yeah, so, so look, you got... Look, I'm just too unsophisticated. You know the bottom Can't line do is, it. No, Can't it's not. That's it. not the one I take from it. The take from it is, look, there's a great... Jazz covers a wide range. And you might take away and say, look, if you're really serious about going, you have to do a little research to see what you're getting into, as perhaps you do in any area. The problem is, going back and looking at the internet, uh, after the fact, uh, there's no way of, of knowing, honestly. Right. I, there, there's no clues. So I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. But uh, it was a very pleasant evening uh, uh, on balance. And on the way home, uh, we had the opportunity, one might say, to listen to the deciding Yankee game. This is what an opportunity is, folks. Dan hops in the car at Port Authority yeah. and demands, as soon as we get through the tunnel, that I find the station with the Yankee game. All right. So this is not just any Yankee game. This is the Yankee-Astro game. The deciding game, as it turns out, in their series... Uh, for the American League pennant, I'm, you know, in full disclosure, I'm not a Yankee fan, uh, not rooting for the Yankees. Um, and this was the game, and some of you would know that the Yankees... It's not full disclosure. Uh, what's full disclosure? Full disclosure is you're rooting against the Yankees. Oh, okay. I'm rooting against the Yankees. Okay. Um, and... Uh, not even for the poor Astros. Yeah, just rooting against... The Astros the, are up 4-2 in the ninth inning, and then with one out... Of all things, the Yankees hit a two-run homer and tie the game. And Ms. Granger says, oh, oh, no. And I say to her, oh, so you're really rooting uh, for the Astros. And she says, no, I'm rooting for it to be over. No, we call that rooting for outs. Rooting for outs. Well, you said I'm rooting for it to be over. But yeah, you, well, in other yeah. times, you have said rooting for outs. Yeah. And what that meant was the game was tied and there was potential to go into extra innings. And instead, in the bottom of the ninth, uh, the Astros, after the first two batters were retired, and I said to you, well, now the Astros might get something going. Indeed, they got a walk. And then Jose Altuve comes up, and I said to you, Astros have a chance here. And here's what's great about baseball, or at least pretty good, is that, so, um, oh, Jose Altuve is all five foot six on 160 pounds. Um, and he's facing a pitcher named Arnaldus Chapman, who's the best closer in baseball. He is six foot four, two hundred twenty pounds. The David and Goliath situation. And of course, I'm telling the story because Jose Altuve hits a home run and wins the game and the series uh, for the Astros. And everybody in Houston gets what they want, and you get what you want, which is to turn the game off. Uh, it's over. I, you know, there was uh, without dwelling on baseball too much. There was interest, one interesting story. Um, you know, you, sometimes you forget these people are human beings, and in fact, they're kids. There was a story about uh, Gary Sanchez, who's uh, the catcher for the Yankees, who was a great hitter, uh, but is often criticized 
for his fielding behind the plate. He uh, Several balls get by him. And, all right, you might just say he's not a gifted fielder, and that's that. He doesn't have the physical tools. But as described in the newspaper here, uh, in the Times, uh, it's a matter of mental conditioning. Uh uh, what uh, we have here is uh, Sanchez says, and he's very open about it, for me, the key is maintaining my focus. Always. Always. I'm still working hard on it. I'm not a, at 100%. And uh, I've improved a lot. He's working with Chad Bowling, who's the team's director of mental conditioning, who actually has put together films with subtitles in Spanish. So that Gary can go over and do these drills to keep his attention up. Uh, and he now uses a mental trick in which when he's catching, he tries to focus on only what's between the first and third base lines and nothing else to clear his mind of everything else. And this actually extends to his personal life. And this guy's a kid. He's just he's early 20s. Mm-hmm. Uh, he said that even when he's home, he finds, uh, well, Bowling has told him to put the cell phone down. Because he's heard from his wife that he hardly, he's always on the phone, he's always distracted by something, he doesn't listen to what she says. And in Sanchez's own view, is he says, sometimes my daughter tells me something and I'm thinking about something else. I need to get better at concentrating and staying in the moment. So there you go. I mean, that might be true of a lot of kids. But, or a uh, lot of husbands. Or a lot of husbands. And fathers. Yeah. Not naming names. <laughs> All right. Somebody distracted by, uh, you know. Let's get back to Halloween. I know you had uh, what I thought was a pretty interesting story, actually. Well, this is from last week, but we didn't get around to it. Mm -hmm. And uh, it's a story of uh, celebrating a holiday in a foreign country. Yes. Which we have tried several times. Always disaster. Always a disaster. Because those people have different holidays. They have different sensibilities. They don't know what they're doing. No, no, no. And it's not just that. It's just your... You're out of the context, and uh, things just seem lonely and dark and right. empty. Right. Even no matter how much you try to uh, celebrate, right. uh, you uh, anyway. So I don't know how to say his name. Dan Coise or Coes, author Dan Coes, on celebrating Halloween at Disneyland Paris, and uh, he. Uh, for some reason, uh, airfares or whatever, he decides to, uh, he and his wife decide to go to Paris mm-hmm. uh, and see some friends at the end of October. And they're actually landing in Paris on Halloween. And, uh, you know, he's got two kids, ages 11 and 13. Well, you know, those are not prime Halloween years, so maybe he thought he could get away with it. Uh, the answer is he can't. No. They were quite upset. Right. And so he said, we'll just find somewhere to celebrate Halloween in Paris. You know, they, they'll probably have great candy. Right. Um, and, of course, they can't find anything. Uh, there's one little celebration going on at, like, uh, the American Library or something. Yes. And that's the weekend before. And, uh, so, But he but does find it's out. Because, it's because the French don't celebrate Halloween. But there is this uh, American... Uh, island, island in uh, in Paris, near Paris, called Disneyland Paris. Disneyland Paris, exactly and, right. And uh, they are celebrating with a big late night party. I don't really get this at all. I think of Disneyland That's as a, daytime a kid yeah. place. Yeah. Um, Paris so even is different. In Paris, Paris is different. So anyway, they land in uh, De Gaulle at De Gaulle Airport. And uh, they hop on the train that goes to Disneyland Paris. Okay, even though 
It's raining. They're tired. They're starving. They drag themselves to this train. And the kids have to go, though. The and, kids want to go. And, uh, you know, they're reasonably excited. I think they have their outfits on or whatever. Yeah. Uh, like unicorn and a witch. Mm-hmm. And um, train stops. Huh? So there's a strike going on. <laughs> yeah, well, it's Paris. The train gets unloaded. <laughs> right. There are allegedly shuttle cars coming. Yeah. And they don't come. They resort to Uber. They get there. Okay. Um, but uh, they're starving. They're starving, and restaurants don't open until 8.30. That's Paris, too. Yeah. Um, but they're in Disneyland. How could there be no food? Well, that, How could there be no food I'm with you. at I'm an amusement you. park? Right. Isn't that what it's all about? Um, so, anyway, they they have a great time. There are, you know, parades and costumes and, uh, you know, other attendants, right. attendees. Well, I'm sure Disneyland knows how to do this. Right. It's, as just, well. it's just super yeah. late. Right? It's a pretty great party. Uh, the party is going to go on until like 2 a.m. Right. And they say, no matter what, we'll stay all the way through. This is a once in a lifetime thing. Okay. And then uh, 2 a.m. comes, park closes, no transportation. Right. They can't get home because they don't run the, uh, the metro that way. Um, yeah, all transportation stopped at midnight. Right. So, <laughs> nonetheless, uh, they have they talk their way into you know, they figure out how somehow to get back to Paris, and it couldn't have been too bad. They get to Paris by three a.m. Right. So okay. If they started at two a.m., I mean. And they said. Um, yeah. And so, of course, it was a huge adventure. It's going to be one of those things they remember forever. Well, that's the way it is. You do these things. Sometimes they're epic fails or they're largely fails. You turn around a little bit. But those are the ones you remember. It's like when we went to Hawaii at Christmas time with the kids. And we're actually changing planes in Houston on Christmas Day. And we get to Hawaii. And there's nothing open. We can't even get anything to eat because it's Christmas Day. Well, we did have we, a we, Christmas dinner at IHOP. At IHOP. That, that's my definition of nothing to eat. Unspeakably bad. Yeah. But, but let's be clear. We don't look back on that. Fondly. Oh, yes. It's no, a... we don't. No. And we don't even laugh. I'm laughing. We just say, lesson learned. <laughs> I... The only time worse than that was... I think, you would have... I think the kids the, were laughing Chris... about it. The kids were younger. We were in Mexico yeah. uh, for Christmas. Well, that's more of a Christmas They were seriously place. pissed off. Really? I mean, they're celebrating Christmas like nobody's business in Mexico. Right? Well, not us, though. Yeah. We didn't have the big tree. And I, we, they weren't doing it our way, but I mean, they're right. certainly paying attention to Christmas, unlike the Parisians and Halloween. All right. Well, listen, uh, there's always room for improvement in that area. So um, right, that you, was a cute still story. still got some time. Halloween's coming up. You can still work on your costume. Yeah. <laughs> we'll, we'll report on how that goes. You're more famous for costumes than I am. Um, there was an interesting article about rivalries. And of course... Uh, you know, the world is so data-centric now. You know, some uh, social scientists decided that there was, had to be a scientific way to measure sports rivalries. People throw around, this is the biggest rivalry, the Boston Red Sox, the Yankees, whoever. Uh, what are the biggest rivalries? And they actually did a bunch of polling to figure out the biggest rivalries. And the way they did it was this. They would go ask people associated with a particular, in the first instance, college school, uh, college football team, let's say, and say, I'd like you to allocate 100 points among your most hated rivals, all right? So a Minnesota fan might allocate 50 points to Wisconsin, 40 to Iowa, 10 to Michigan, that sort of thing. 
And what they wanted to, and on that, based on that kind of polling, they identified the biggest rivalries. The biggest rivalries would be two schools that each side had put an inordinate amount of points on the other school, right? So it turns out the biggest rivalry, you're going to be disappointed, is Arizona-Arizona State because Arizona fans gave an average of 89 points to Arizona State and average state, Arizona State gave 83 back to uh, Arizona. And the reason is because they don't have other schools that are rivals. There's nobody else in competition with them. They just have the, each other. So um, that's the biggest rivalry based on that kind of thing. And, and they talk about other examples of rivalries, you know, Patriots, Jets, Eagles, Cowboys, Falcons, Saints, Steelers, Ravens, Packers, Bears, et cetera, et cetera. But uh, what's, here's what's interesting about this. Number one is it's the sad situation when you have a school which says 90 points on this other school and the other school doesn't care about them. So Boston College, they asked everybody there, who's your biggest rival? They gave 90 points to Notre Dame. Notre Dame people ask about their biggest rival. Boston College doesn't come up. They're not on the screen. They don't care about Boston College. It's a one-sided rivalry. Uh, and so that just shows Boston College that are kind of insignificant. They're, uh, uh, they're just a blip in the eyes of the Notre Dame fans. Um, so the best rivalries are those in which each side really focuses on the other side, like, like New York, Boston. And what they conclude about that is this. Um, those schools that rank as the closest rivals are very similar. In other words, your biggest rival is the person most similar to you. The, big, the schools that are the most, Harvard-Yale, okay, are one of the biggest rivalries. Why? Because of the similarity. They're going to look at each other the same way, sort of a mirror image thing. And that's kind of funny, but when you think about it, that's kind of true. Those are your biggest rivals in life, the people who have a fair bit of common with, with you, right? Right. <laughs> all right. This was in the New York Times, right? <laughs> So, you know, all right, so let me... Kind of, kind of me, always, you Turning know, the subject... Late-breaking, obvious... All news. right, all right. Well, here's something. I'll just read this quote. I have a couple of things that I just... Mean, you're not going to talk about the rivalry you read about in the Wall Street Journal, the Mankiewicz brothers. Well, the Mankiewicz, I guess, I, I, Mankiewicz I brothers. I don't, I don't know if that was truly a rivalry. That was kind of all over the place. That was Joe and Herman Mankiewicz, who were both brothers, who were both screenwriters. And they achieved various levels of success, Joe much more than Herman. And Joe... Um, Got All About Eve, got 14 Academy Award nominations, a whole bunch of things. Right. That, uh, he's had a big career. Herman was an alcoholic. Uh, he wandered out to Hollywood and somehow managed uh, to write uh, the the Orson Welles movie. Citizen Kane. Citizen Kane. So he gets well, points for that. Well, 60% of it or 60, something. Yes. <laughs> Orson Welles, uh, you know, people have explained. He, he did write it, but Orson Welles changed it. But um, So he had some success. But at the end of the day, he decided... He ended up the most more balanced guy, even though he was an alcoholic, because Joe was so animated by his success, he went kind of off the rails. He was impossible to live with. And, of course, he ended, as many careers do, based on hubris, uh, with incredible failure in the form of Cleopatra, mm -hmm. which was one of the great busts of all time. And right. he insisted on having... I, uh, I mean, you know, you can sort of see, <laughs> in retrospect, you see that. Because everything he did, everything else he did was kind of urban yeah. and contemporary, right. you know. And then uh, he does this big historical thing where he has no right. experience it's, and, and it's, no um, background. Right. And, and so, Elizabeth Taylor was just carried away with Richard Burton. Richard Burton was just you know, mailing it in. And you know who they said was the best thing 
in Cleopatra? You'll be happy to know. Yes. Yes. Rex Harrison. Rex Harrison, indeed. As Caesar. As Caesar. As anything. Sexy Rexy. Yeah, so is that guy on the TCM related? So the guy on TCM, the Mankiewicz on TCM, is the great nephew of Joe. Great so, nephew. Yes. So his, like, it's his Grand, grandfather's. Great, so there were other brothers or uh, sisters? Apparently, or yes. I think brothers, that means I guess, another brother or sister. Yeah. Mankiewicz, but, he's so. really, but he does talk about both Herman and Joe. Uh, because you're obviously related to both of them. You can't be related to one of them. Uh, in, in a way that, uh, you know, it's a family thing. And he looks like Joe Mankiewicz, frankly. Um, so he's an insider. He's good, I think. Don't you yeah. think so? Oh, yeah, I do think he's good. And the, the funny thing about that article is they said uh, their father was never happy with them. I mean, well, that's, that <laughs> you was know, the they thing. to have all these huge accolades. Because they were, they were, and he's, you know, the father is always hoping they'll get serious and do something important. Right, because movies were just nothing. Just keep that in mind. Yes, you I know, will. I'll remember is that. Nothing ever important enough for your parents. All right. So back to uh, competition, if I can redeem myself. Uh, they had an article about Mark Allen and Dave Scott, who I remember watching a million years ago in Wide World of Sports, competing in the first few Hawaiian Ironman competitions when they invented that. And the Ironman competition in Hawaii, which is the World Championships, you may recall it's 2.4 miles swimming, followed by 112 miles biking and 26 miles uh, running. How's that? At, at the end. <laughs> at the end. At the end. And I can also tell you from watching this, it's hot. Yeah. <laughs> so, I know we used to watch it. I don't, I don't ever see it uh, come up anymore, but it used to turn up on like the wild, wide world of sports. That, it was perfect. It was yeah. it, it was the epitome was of crazy. wide world of sports. But why does anybody do that? I don't even know. Well, this that. was, I can't answer that based on this article. Uh, a lot of people do it now more than ever, but uh, the com- principal competitors that Dave Scott was the name of the guy who was winning uh, the first few times, and his the guy who came in second those first couple times, then Mark Allen. Eventually, Mark Allen surpassed Dave Scott and won six or seven times. And they got, were getting together for a reunion. There's a picture of the two of them now in middle age. And it's an interview with Mark Allen, and it's kind of interesting. They asked him about how competitive he is and does he have an intense desire to win. And I just thought he gave an interesting answer to this. Make of it what you will. He says there's something called the peak performance paradox. During every one of the six championships I won, there were hundreds of moments where it didn't feel possible. You get into negative space and you have to draw back and regroup and take a breath and say, what can I do? And then focus on your rhythm and breathing, looking around at the lava and the beauty and the ocean, and then everything loosens back up. Those are amazing transformations when they happen, and those are the moments that are like life. Life doesn't say if you give everything you, ha- if you, give everything you have, you will have a guarantee of getting what you want. Life says give everything you have, and then let's see what happens. So there you go. Pretty yeah. philosophical, I thought. Yeah, I think that's a good philosophy. Yeah. It makes it kind of makes sense. Yes. Um, but it is disappointing. What's disappointing? Because well, yeah, you figure if you try hard enough, you should win, right? Well, if he goes on to say he doesn't define winning as beating the other guy. I mean, uh, on the one hand, he, he hates the phrase, I'm just competing with myself. And yet... He says, what does it, anybody else have to do with it? You know, I'm, I'm actually supporting the competition. I think the competitors ought to support themselves. I think so gosh darn hard, we have to support each other. Mm-hmm. But, and then I'm just out there to do the best I can and, and whatever. So maybe it's a little more complicated than that. He seems unbelievably positive about it. He was the world champion. After all, and uh, God, it's hard. But, uh, Impressive. Yeah. 
Elaine Stritch. Yes. Great performer. She was in plays, musicals, film, television, cabaret, and newspaper gossip columns. Is that right? She died in 2014 at the age of 89. Well, isn't, isn't it fair to say that her most famous thing is the song from Company? Yeah, that became like her theme song, it's I'm a, Still Here. No, no, I'm Still Here. No, but what? She didn't even sing that in Company. What she sang Company was uh, Ladies Who Lunch. Oh, Ladies Who Lunch? Yeah. Here's Still Ladies Here Who Lunch. became her... Uh, no. It became might have. her theme song. Is that right? Yeah. Okay, but in, in the famous in the famous performance of Company in which she appeared, it was a video. It was a concert performance. Yes, I know. We see that a lot. It's a great... But you know... It's a great song. She doesn't perform that song. She doesn't perform it. I'm Still Here. You know who performs it? Carol Burnett. Okay, fine, Daniel. Okay. It, but it's not Carol Burnett's theme song. Okay, all right. Okay, for years and years uh, and years. But I, but I do know. Stritch had her her cafe Carlisle. And yet, I do know Carol Burnett's theme song. Which I'm so glad we had this time together. Yeah, that says all you need to know about, <laughs> about the Carol difference Burnett. between these two. All right, ladies. so back. To, I, I threw okay. you off. I'll and, she had, and, and she had a tough life. She had a, a serious drinking and, problem. Yes, etc. For okay. Sure. Anyway, it's kind of a fun article. I guess uh, inspired uh, by um, well, Alexandra Jacobs is I guess writing a new biography on Stritch, yeah. titled "Still Here." Okay, and um, in the process, uh, she's come across uh, a list of parts that Elaine Stritch did not get, right. and the stories involved with them. And, and of course, uh, you know, as, uh, you know, theater goers were blissfully unaware of all the trials and tribulations and negative things these great stars go through. Right. Uh, and we only see uh, the positive, mostly positive results. Um, and so it's a fun kind of list starting out from when she's very young, 1946, she's trying out for a play. She's right out of convent school. She's trying out for a play, and she stops to ask, I guess, the director or somebody uh, about something in uh, the script, something in the plot right. that has to do with people living together before they're married. She's completely being right out of the convent school. Un uh, didn't know you could do that. You didn't know you could do that. <laughs> <laughs> and so she does not get the part. Well, I think it was uh, Kirk Douglas, actually. Was uh, Kirk Douglas says, "Oh my God!" Uh, oh, it's Kirk Douglas. She yeah. asks. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, that well, that's pretty cute. Uh, then he says, "Hey, Kurt, what is this stuff? <laughs> <laughs> We're supposed to be living together. We're not even married. Yeah, yes. <laughs> uh, Must be so. some mistake." Yeah. <laughs> um, and, and then there's a bunch of other stories. She does not get a part uh, in "Anyone Can Whistle." Oh, she actually turns it down, takes a different starring right. role, which is also a flop. Right. And uh, anyone can whistle one of the few Sondheim flop flops. It, yeah. Um, nonetheless, uh, you'd rather flop in Sondheim than something. That, uh, that's nonetheless, it. there's a song from that. Yeah. Everyone says don't. Right. That becomes yeah. another one of her signature. Yeah. Oh, there's, songs. there's some great songs. And she just she feels she chose the wrong flop. She did. Um, but. Uh, the person who gets the part in this situation is Angela Lansbury. Right. So I could go through all these stories, and mostly Angela Lansbury That's gets the part. got the parts. Yeah. Okay, and you know sometimes there are you know various stories as to why she doesn't get it. 
Um, and sometimes she's glad she doesn't get it. And uh, for instance, she doesn't get the the part of Maine. Right. In Maine. Well, and she was glad she didn't get it. Yeah. Well, basically, well, she she performs it a little bit at a certain point, but um, she realizes that the part she actually had originally, Vera, oh. the tipsy sidekick, right, right, was right. a much better part. That was the and, uh, the B. Arthur part. Yeah. Right. Um, and so uh, you know. Uh, there is that. Then speaking of B. Arthur, uh, she tried out uh, apparently for the Golden Girls. Right. For the television For the B. Arthur part. Yeah. And uh, <laughs> she couldn't get out of there fast enough, uh, apparently. Um, first of all, she wanted to change some of the script. There was uh, lines where the, um, you know, the actress has to keep oh, saying, yeah, yeah, oh, yeah. God. Right. And she said, you know, I've got this Catholic upbringing. Oh, God doesn't wor- really work for me. And she stuck in some other kind of profanity instead. <laughs> they didn't <laughs> and, like that. And uh, yeah. they were quite taken aback. Yeah. Um, but she says, you know, um, I hate that show. Who'd be crazy enough to live in Florida with two other women and their mother? Yeah. Uh, so Not for uh, her. Well, you know, that's what it is, right? It, it's not every part fits everybody. I mean, she had a distinct personality. Uh, right? Right. And um, she's, uh, you, know, you know, matter of fact, but they play, I, I think she was considered a little bit of a, um, sort of a sex bomb at the very beginning. So really? Include, yeah, the, 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 the music that they play of hers on, um, on the radio, on the, on the Broadway station, is You Took Advantage of Me. You ever hear that recording? Yes. That's her. Uh, and and that, that is, I don't know if we'll call it a strip number, I don't know, it might be. I mean, that's, that was her uh, reputation. Yeah, but she's one of those people that exudes a certain kind of je ne sais quoi. Rather than just looking at her and saying, okay, this is a gorgeous, desirable person, she creates that. Yes, she's the same. Her singing and her attitude. Even at at the age of 75, she's the kind of person who walks in a room and all attention goes to her. Well, the other song you always hear on the Broadway station is the one from her act where she's running from right. performance to performance. She's 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 in something in Manhattan and then has to take a train up right. to... Because she's an understudy to yes. like Ethel Merman. Yeah. yeah. And uh, she has to take a train up to another production in Connecticut back and forth and back and forth because she's, you know, she's cranking out a living right. there. Well, um, she was never a huge star, right? But it's because she has such a big personality and such a distinct personality, she didn't fit a lot of the times in the way of Angela Lansbury just... Fits in everything, right? So she's an easier person to cast. But you know, we were talking yesterday about the Music Man coming to Broadway, in the conversation at dinner, and the question is, you know, are you eager to see the Music Man with Hugh Jackman? And you said, eh. <laughs> even though maybe not. You said and I said I love Hugh Jackman. I don't love the idea of him in that part. Yeah. Um, right. Well, you know, he he just doesn't seem like uh, you know, Hugh Jackman is just so adorable, right? And he has such charisma. Mm-hmm. You know, Robert Preston had that kind of you know a little bit of that essence of dark underside. Yeah, you know, yeah. He, he, um, he was a con man. He was a con. He man. was in essence slightly. And, you know, you know that um, Jackman's going to play it as. I'm not really a con man. Right. You know, at heart, I'm, I'm a good, a good guy. man. Right. You know, that's exactly and, right. Uh, you know, and I, I think that's going to be a less interesting, less nuanced yeah. uh, way to approach it. Clearly, Preston, you just felt you didn't know him, that he's not entirely reliable. He was entertaining, fast talking, fun, but 
not entirely reliable. That's the way yeah. that part yeah. played. Yeah. And, and whereas Hugh Jackman, you you can't help but think he's he's okay, right. and, and that's bad. Right. Because and, and Mary the librarian is not going to be able to resist him at all. Uh, you know what I mean? I mean yeah. She tries to resist yeah. at the beginning, and then she's won over. You know, Hugh Jackman walks in. You just say, "Okay, I'm in." All right. See, now I think you're just uh, identifying with the character, but okay. All right, so I know, just to finish up, I had a couple of things I wanted to read. One of them, we don't often enough quote John Stuart Mill, the great economist. And I'm just not even going to give you the context or anything. I'll just read it, and you'll get through it. Here's what he has to say. It's about argument. He who knows only his own side of the case knows little of that. Nor is it enough that he should hear the arguments of adversaries from his own teachers. He must be able to hear them from persons who actually believe them, else he will never really possess himself for the portion of truth which meets and removes that difficulty. Ninety-nine and a hundred of what are called educated men are in this condition, even of those who can argue fluently for their opinions. Their conclusion may be true, but it might be false for anything they know. They have never thrown themselves into the mental position of those who think differently from them and consider what such persons may have to say and consequently they do not in any proper sense of the word know the doctrine which they themselves profess. I thought that was pretty good. So what do you think that means? That means that it's not just a matter of uh, understanding uh, the position the other side is taking on a fairly high level. It's a matter of hearing that position advocated in a serious way by the other side and listening hard and giving it full consideration. And it's only by virtue of going through that process that you can be confident in the faith you put in your own position, which is, of course, it's what the adversarial system in, in justice is all about. Right. That's the idea. So I think there is something to it. People are constantly at odds in politics and other ways. They say, uh, I think I, I, I have the handle on those guys. I know where they're coming from, but they, they barely do. And right. uh, and they don't That's feel it's true. worth the effort. And he's saying yeah. not only do you have to make, not only do you have to know, you have to really know, and you have to hear it from them in the in the best possible circumstances. And only then can you reject it and embrace your own position. So. Um, I think it sounded like he was talking about you have to really almost put yourself in their position. Yes. And uh, know what they're going to say. Um, but hear it from them. And hear it from them. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's interesting because I, what we do here mostly is uh, people shutting up. Yeah. The other one, right. as you were saying. Yeah. I know what you're going to say. I know what you're you going know, to say. I, I know what you think. Even if you don't say it, you know it. And, yeah. you're, and people are sitting there formulating what they're going to say when the other person's talking. As and opposed to saying, well, let me hear exactly what you're saying before I reject it out of hand. That is so rarely done, uh, certainly not in public, because yeah. that's considered a sign of weakness. Um, and finally, you know, we do look at uh, Metropolitan Diary once in a while, because there might be something there that's half so, interesting or funny. So that's a column in the New York Times right. that has little stories sent in by the readers right. and, about life in New York. And, uh, you know, uh, no criticism. They're heartfelt, but they're usually not worth repeating. And this is not a major one, but this kind of struck my fancy. And they're always, you know, written by older people who are talking about things that happened 40, 50 years ago. And sure enough, this one is also uh, by this fellow named Tom Ickert, who said he used to walk home with a friend of his from work from 16th Street to 83rd Street. It's a long walk, but this is the way he decompressed. And they, he gets into a conversation with his friend about uh, neither of them being good at sports, but Tom pipes up and says, I was good at tumbling. He says, seriously, my colleague said. 
And then Tom says, watch this. And I dropped back a few steps and proceeded to do my first cartwheel in 20 years in front of the Rivoli Theater, a movie palace that is now long gone. Very impressive, my colleague said. Just then a woman sitting in traffic honked her horn and rolled down her window. You bent your knees, she said. I walked back to my starting point and did another one. Now that, she said, is a cartwheel. <laughs> that probably happened. All right, so that's all we have. So there's a lot of stuff we'll be reporting on next week. I don't know how we're going to do it. First of all, we're going to be getting together with the Gompertz, who are famous on this podcast, uh, for their raffish ways, and that will be on uh, Friday. And then on uh, Sunday, we're going to see uh, Macbeth at Classic Stage Company in the opening uh, and I don't know how we're going to time the podcast. Maybe we'll be reporting on that. But uh, that's coming up soon enough. All right. So, so until then. This I'm Tamsin Granger. And this is Dan Apuhoff. And uh, we'll see you next week. On uh, Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. <laughs>